I hope you are enjoying the story as you're reading it at home. Uh, if you are not reading it with your family, jump in because we have probably 27 more weeks to go. Uh, if you're new here, I'm preaching through the entire Bible and looking at the major movements of the Scripture and watching how there's, there is one story theme that goes through the entire story of the Bible, and that is that God will do everything possible to bring us back into fellowship with him, the same level of fellowship as he did with Adam and Eve. And you'll see that time after time. If you don't have the story book, which is a, a very large section of the Bible, it's put in chronological order, we have some, if you'll go down this hall all the way down towards the children's desk, there are some down there, and we'd be glad to make sure that you have some of those. Uh, how many of you know that great theologian by the name of Rodney Dangerfield? He wasn't a theologian, but I tell you, he was one of my, and is one of my favorite comedians back in the 60s and 70s, and even the 80s, you still saw some of him. But he was always making fun of the hard life that he had. It was just his thing, right? I mean, nothing was good enough, and he just had such a, a, a hard life, and no one loved him, and how he always got the short end of the stick. He would say things like, when I was born, I was so ugly, the doctor slapped my mama. Or no one wanted to play with me as a kid, so my dad had to tie a pork chop around me so that the dog would play with me. I looked up my family tree, and I found that I was the sap. I could tell my parents hated me. My bath toys were a toaster and a radio. <laughs> and my favorite was, my psychiatrist told me that I was crazy, and I said that I wanted a second opinion. He said, okay, you're ugly too. <laughs> well, I tell you, have you ever felt that no matter how hard you tried, you just can't win. You, we just, all of us have felt like we were the Roger Dangerfield of our, of our families or our church. You can't get ahead financially. The creditors are always chasing you. You love sports, but you certainly aren't the fastest. And, you, and you're not very coordinated. You're, you're in the sales business, but you can't make a sale. You have a a big, you have big business plans, but it seems like you, you always buy high and sell low. That's how Darla and I like to sell our houses. We always sell high, buy high and we sell low. That's just the way we roll. If you've ever felt outnumbered, unqualified, disadvantaged, you will be encouraged by the story that you're about to read this coming week, and I'm going to introduce to you this morning. It's the story found in Judges chapter 6, 7 through 16, it's Gideon's story. Would you please stand in honor of reading God's word? My friends, what I'm about to read to you is God's word, and if you'll read it, and if you'll study it, and if you'll apply it to your life, it will radically change your life. This is what it says in Judges chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand 
of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the, land, into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord? Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites, leaving none alive. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. God had given the Israelites everything that they needed to be a great, successful, holy, accomplished nation. This story begins at a time when Israel has been in Canaan now for 300 years. So what we preached about last week with Joshua and Jericho... They've now entered the land of Canaan. In the last week, they, it's now been 300 years, okay? So 300 years since we preached on Jericho, okay? He had given them during these last 300 years and also before that because during, there was also 430 years before that that they were, that they were slaves in Egypt. So during that time... God has already chosen these people and he gave them a set of laws that would guide them so that they would know how to be a holy communion, a holy community. So he gave them what we find in Leviticus, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. That, those were the laws that God gave Moses as he was up on the mountain. He also gave the Israelites during this time period his presence in the tabernacle. So God knew that the people needed to gather and be in his presence. So he showed Moses what he would need to do to build a tabernacle so that the people could come and be in his presence and worship him. 
And he also knew that they needed to atone for their sins. So he created a system of atonement of killing the animal or the bird and sacrificing it and asking for forgiveness. And he also gave them tremendous victory over their enemies during this time period. They were to go into the land of Canaan that we now call Israel, and they were to accomplish great things because God was with them. And God said, I want you to go into Canaan and I want you to remove all of the enemies, right? And he gave them a land that he had promised Abraham almost a thousand years before that. He gave them this land of Canaan and he said, this will be yours forever. But that wasn't enough for God's people. Unfortunately, they became addicted to worshiping false idols. It was a blatant violation of the very first command that God had given them. The scripture says in Judges 2, they followed and worshiped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Ashtoreths. And there's this unfortunate and sad statement found in Judges 2.10. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered up to their fathers, or they died, another generation grew up, and this is the sad part, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They had never heard. They didn't hear the stories of how God provided and healed and helped them escape Egypt. and They had just never heard. And that was such a sad moment in Judges chapter 2. Well, the Israelites' sin brought brokenness, loss, division to their people, and God severely punished their idolatry by allowing other rulers to oppress them. Battle after battle. Battle losses forced the once victorious Israelites now into the mountains hiding from the enemy that was living in their own land. Get the picture? It's no wonder that the key description of this time period in, in uh, this time period of the Israelites is found in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. If you have your Bibles and if you're a writer in your Bible like I am, you really need to underline Judges 17, 6 because it describes how awful this time period was. And it's really the context of all of Judges. In fact, put it at the very title page of Judges. See 17, 6. It says, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That was the context. Basically, anything goes. Know any place like that? The more I hear the news, the more I'm thinking, you know what? I'm thinking we're living closer and closer to that today. And there are other places around the world that is so much more, so much worse. 
eventually the Israelites reached this point of desperation and finally called God to rescue them. Finally. Well, God responds to their brokenness by providing judges to lead them. Now, I don't want you to think in your minds that a judge in this day has a black robe on, is an old person with gray hair, great wisdom sitting behind this big wooden desk like we might consider a judge today. That is not true. A judge during the Old Testament was often a great warrior who was also a national leader. They had wisdom. They knew how to lead people. They knew how to bring together a community and move them together. So God's judges were warriors who often wore helmets and they carried swords most of the time. Now, I have a graphic that I, I want us to look at. The book of Judges tells us that they, that of a rebellious 350-year uh, history of Israel. That's what Judges was. It was another 350 years. And it's the story of, of seven different times they w- went through this cycle. There are five different stages in the cycle, and they went through it seven different times. They might have peace, but then they would move into rebellion. And then they would move into a a time of oppression when their enemies would come and oppress them and steal their goods and steal their women and steal their children. And then they would repent, oh God, I'm so sorry, please forgive us. And then God would say, okay, I forgive you. And he would provide a great warrior national leader who would be their judge, who would then lead them into a time of peace. Each cycle, each time that this cycle started, the scripture would say, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You'll find that seven different times in Judges, and you'll find all five of those in the cycle. They would rebel, and then they would be oppressed, and then they would repent, and then God would provide a judge, and then there'd be another set of years of peace, and then it would read, again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, seven different times. So of the 350 years, if I were writing in my Bible, I would put 350 years at the top of of the title page of Judges. That's what all of the book represents. Of that 350 years, they spent 111 years in oppression. Can I remind you that these were the people who were victorious over the Egyptians? escaped miraculously, and then they walked through dry ground on the Red Sea and they escaped. These were the same people that free food fell from the sky and fed almost two million people every single day. What a miracle. These were the people who saw God's presence lead them in the desert for 40 years 
with a, with a column of cloud by day and a column of fire by night. That's how God led them through the desert. These are the people who watched Jericho collapse and other cities just like it. They literally had it all spiritually. They had God's presence. They had his anointing. God had chosen them. He had given them victory. If they would only follow him, they could have the entire land, all of it. But that wasn't enough. God appoints a judge. But first we see Gideon in a very oppressive time. Joshua had led them into the promised land. Jericho had been conquered. Now we had, you have to fast forward uh, uh, 350, uh, not quite 350 years to the time of, of Gideon, but, but they had not conquered the whole land yet. God had told them to conquer everything, yet the Israelites decided to go the easy route. They might conquer this city, but not that city. And they would choose the easy path instead of the hard path. And they begin to choose their battles. And they would say, well, God will conquer this one, but we're going to skip this one. So they lived in a land that had the enemy still living in very significant parts of it. They allowed the, their enemy to remain in their places of power. Now, let me put this in the context of what you and I might understand. Just imagine buying a house, committing your home to be a holy place of prayer and honor and ministry, dedicating it to God's glory, but you allow the previous owner to live in one of the bedrooms and he is a Satan worshiper. Can, can you be successful in a home like that? That's what Israel was at this time. The Midianites were the current troublemakers of Israel. Now, Israel had multiple troublemakers, but at this moment, it was the Midianites. And for seven straight years, they would invade Israel during the harvest season. And they would wait until all of the grain was harvested and they would have their spies looking over the, the hills and waiting until all of the work was done. And then they would send their soldiers in and they would steal all of the wheat or they would burn it all up. And for seven straight years, the Israelites went hungry. Times were desperate and people were starving. Fear was constant. They all lived in expectation that at any moment the Midianites would come over the hill and they would kill and they would steal and they would destroy. It was once again a time that Israel became repentant and they asked God for a judge to lead them again. And in this context, we find Gideon hiding in the bottom of a wine press. You know what a wine press is? Often in today's uh, uh, pictures and movies, we might see a, a wooden barrel that might be about 
uh, six feet wide, and there'd be women with their uh, in Italy, and they'd roll up their skirts to about right here, and they'd be stomping on the grapes, and and the and as the grapes were were squished, the juice would run down through tubes. Right, that's basically what it was here. It was this this area that had a, a, a valley, and he was now hiding in it so that the Midianites couldn't see him. Gideon could have been voted in high school least likely to succeed. That was Gideon. When God spoke to him, he was hiding in a pit so that the enemy couldn't find him, and he was separating his grapes there. Even, or actually he was, he was separating his grain in the grape pit is what he was doing, but he was hiding. And even he is surprised when God gives him this prestigious assignment of saving the nation. And he reminds God in Judges 6.25 that he is not not only prepared, but he is the youngest in his family from the weakest tribe of the 12, and he is a runt known in his family to be weak. So he knew that he was the weakest link in the whole chain, not exactly gladiator of mentality. Gladiator material, and certainly not a future judge for all of Israel. But the angel of the Lord meets him in the bottom of the wine press, and he says something really crazy. He said, The Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. Don't you know Gideon just laughed out loud quietly, though, because he didn't want the enemy to hear? Just laughed out loud when God called him the mighty warrior. He was like, Mighty warrior? <laughs> that's a good one, God. Big coward? Yep, that's me. Godless wonder? Yep, right here, that's me. Yellow belly, milk toast, liver, lily livered sapsucker? Yep, right here. Right, that's me, God. Mighty warrior? Absolutely not. He knew who he was. And Judge Gideon learns that God's strategy is different than his. With God's assurance that he was a mighty warrior, Gideon was readied for the big test. He knew that he had to take this responsibility on, but he knew he was not ready for it. So he began to recruit all of his men to go fight, go to war with the Midianites, and he recruits 32,000 men. Well, that sounds like a whole lot of men to me. But the problem is the Midianites had 135,000 men. They were outnumbered four to one. God came to Gideon and said, you have a serious number problem. And Gideon totally agreed, you are right, God. We have 32,000, they have 135,000. That is awful numbers. God said, no, Gideon, you, you don't understand. You have too many men. God said in 7-2, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into your soldiers' hands or Israel 
would boast against me, my own strength has saved me. I love that. God says, this is my battle. I don't want anyone in Israel taking credit for this victory but me. So the Lord then tells Gideon to send home every soldier that is afraid. <laughs> can, can you just picture the scene here? I'm sure Gideon was saying, well, God, I think every one of my soldiers are afraid. And so he announces, how many of you are afraid? And don't you know, two-thirds said, yep, that's me. I'm afraid. And so he sends home 22,000 of the 32,000 home. Now he only has 10,000 against the 135,000. Now it's 13 to 1. Those are bad numbers. And God says, you know, Judge Gideon, that is still just a little bit too high. We're going to have to reduce it a little bit more. I can imagine Gideon's face just draining of blood. God tells Gideon to take the men to the water because he's about to thin them out a little bit more. And 7.5 says, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. The scripture says 300 of the 10,000 men lapped the water with their tongue in their hands and the rest put their mouths in the water to drink. And God said, I'll take those who lap like dogs, 300 of them. Now, this is important. I've heard, and my guess is you've heard so many sermons about how God chose the most brave and the prepared soldiers because the men were always alert even when, uh, even when they were drinking the water. They would pull in the water up like this, and that way they could, they could watch instead of getting down on their hands and knees to, to lap the water. I've heard that God chose the, the most prepared water. Unfortunately, I think that is a wrong understanding. Today in the United States, dogs sleep in our beds and we feed them from our tables and we groom them and we put foo-foo uh, uh, ribbons in their hair and, and we, 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 we think that this is just a, a wonderful friend of the family, right? That's the context of the United States. Not so in biblical world. Not so. As you look at the scripture, you, you see any time it talks about a dog, it was anything but complimentary in the, in the Old and New Testament. It was a slam to be called a dog. It was a cut down. It was the lowest animal. They were nuisance animals during the Old Testament and New Testament. David Busick writes, in other words, these were not the 300 Spartans. These were not Israelite elite special forces. These are the 300 dog lappers. These were 300 geeky guys who would trip over their own swords, he writes. And this is who God leaves with Gideon, 300 of these against 135,000 men. 
God was about to remind Gideon of this upper story that God was looking after. The whole point of God winnowing the the troops, getting rid of so many, was to make clear that the victory was God's alone. He was now, Gideon was now leading into battle, and the odds were 450 enemy to one. 450 men that were amazing soldiers to one, and these were dog lappers. That's God's kinds of numbers. God wanted the Israelites to live with total dependence on me, on him, didn't he? He knew that if the Israelites defeated the Midianites with a full army, they would become boastful, prideful. They would think that it was because of their superior military strength and their strategic thinking that saved them. Just like Adam and Eve thought they could be as wise as God, the Israelites would then believe that they were as strong as God. So in this upper story, the only way that we can be in relationship with God is to acknowledge that he is God, and it all depends on him, and we are to trust him completely. God brought amazing success to Judge Gideon and the Israelites. Gideon lays out God's military strategy to his ragamuffin band of of water-lapping soldiers, He tells his tiny army to light a torch and then hide the light with a a jar of clay on top of it. And each soldier would hold the clay jars with the fire inside in their left hand, and in the right hand, they would carry a spear, a machine gun, a bazooka. Not at all. They would carry something sharp, No, they would carry a trumpet. A covered light and a trumpet. It gets worse, doesn't it? They snuck up to their enemy's camp at night, and at Gideon's command, they would smash the clay pot, the light, the night would go bright all of a sudden and they would begin to blow the trumpets and, and the, the flash fires and the horn, horns blowing in the middle of the night confused the frightened Midianites so greatly that they literally began to kill each other. The Israelites didn't have to do anything. The scripture says when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. So it was with Gideon. The runt of the weakest family, of the weakest tribe in Israel, leads an army of 300 water-lapping dog soldiers who carried nothing sharp, and they defeated the Midianites. And under his leadership, Israel enjoys now 40 years of peace and prosperity. And can I give you just a few really quick lessons about judges? Playing with sin 
can lead to compromise and finally failure. Think of the cycle. There was peace. But then they would get full of themselves and begin to be tempted and they would begin to enjoy the sin of the Midianites and all of a sudden they were in rebellion and compromise. Many times Israel would only follow some of God's commands. They would allow some of the idolatrous tribes to live close to them when God had said, remove them. Don't do anything that they do. But they would saddle up close to them. And Israel's failure to fully drive out the Canaanites led them into compromise and gross idolatry time after time. It was their fault. God told them, clean it all out. Take over it all. Make this whole land holy. Yet they said, how about just this part and this part we'll make holy and let all, let all of the other idol worshipers live where they want. If we take God's requirement for holiness for granted, if we don't do that, we can easily slip into indifference and compromise and even sin. We don't get to cherry pick the laws of God's to follow God expects his people to be holy all of the time. Here's another lesson. The Lord is willing to use flawed people to bring about his deliverance. Many of the judges that you'll read, you'll read about at least seven of them in the book of Judges, you'll see that they were seriously flawed themselves often. You'll read the story of Deborah next week. You'll you just heard of about Gideon, and I'll talk to you soon about Samson. Boy, was he flawed. If God uses flawed people, what does that say about God? And what does it say about your usability? That makes me excited. Here's another lesson God gets the glory all of the time. Could God have brought about a military victory with Gideon using more conventional means? Maybe, sure. But people could have easily just said that it was because of the numbers of men. That's why they won. There are times that God wanted everyone to know that if there was success, it had nothing to do with the leader. It had nothing to do with the soldiers. It had nothing to do with the numbers of weapons. It was all God. God gets all of the glory all of the time. And also, God responds to our brokenness with mercy and grace again and again and again and again. During the time of wandering, the Israelites were always in great need. They would complain, then God would provide, then there would be a peace, then they would complain again, over and over and over. And during the time of judges, they would sin, and they would, then they would be oppressed, and then they would repent, and then God would bring a great leader, and then 
they'd be in peace again, and then don't you know it, they would sin again. It's a story of our lives, too. We sin, we repent, and God takes us back, and often, only to fall again, what would happen if we made a decision to follow God completely? Not to sin again, decide that we are going to live a holy life, asking God to take out of our hands or putting into our hands whatever he knows to be best all of the time. Would you please stand? I've told you, whoa, I may actually need a, another. <laughs> well, let's just do this. I've told you that <clears throat> I've told you that I love church history. Uh, yes, I know you're thinking, man, he's so cool. He likes church history. <laughs> I'm just a nerd who likes books. Some of the most fascinating times for the church were during the times when the church, Big C Church, around the world, uh, were in deep periods of lethargy. Uh, even rebellion against God. It's fascinating what happened during those stages. And it was difficult, it was, it was during those difficult days that God, or that the people finally started listening to the voice of God. They finally started trusting him and they would cry out to him and, and, and then he would answer them with his great power and he would reclaim his children who had wandered away from him and God would protect and the church would grow. Our own stories of weakness, complacency, even sin are always met with God's invitation to return back to him. That's the way God rolls. He's such a gracious God that anytime we come to him broken, even though we've done something stupid, even though he told us, this is what's going to happen if you do that. You know what God says? Come on back. Let's deal with this thing. Serve me. Let me forgive you. We can try it on our own way until we get in such a mess that we finally turn to God and he always takes us back. Regardless of what we've done. No matter how far We've gone, know how, how, uh, how long it's been since we came back to God. He's always welcoming. He's the Father that forgives and loves and welcomes us back to his table. And I love it that God has this ability, this desire, even this commitment to use the weakest, the one that is the least prepared with the least experience, with no education, who has no authority, that if he finds that person who's willing to do whatever God asks, he becomes the judge. He becomes the warrior, the leader, the one that God chooses. And I don't know what God is inviting you to do, but I'm confident that God is constantly inviting us to take another step of leadership, to take another step of 
commitment. To begin to disciple someone that you don't feel ready to disciple because of your own experience. God is always inviting us to have those hard conversations with neighbors and friends who you just don't know if you've got what it takes to invite them into a relationship with Jesus. But God chooses the unprepared. He chooses the inexperienced, the one who's the weakest from the weakest with the weakest experience. So I invite you. Do as Gideon does. Say, you know what, God? I think you got the wrong person. But I'm willing. Use me. When I walk through deep waters, I know that you will be with me. When I'm standing in the fire, I will not be overcome. Through the valley of the You will never leave me. 
hope you'll join us tonight at 5 o'clock. We'll have a, a very quick uh, meal together if you'll just bring light snacks. And then at 5.30, we're going to be having a Seder meal. And I promise you, you don't want to miss that. It'll be a wonderful opportunity for us to look into Jewish history and see how it was the Messiah that was coming through all of the parts of that meal. The Jews even today participate in. So I I hope that you'll join us tonight at five o'clock. Would you receive this benediction? If you are cowering in the presence of a great enemy, challenge or trial, I wish for you the presence of our victorious Lord. He may bring about relief in a way that you would not choose, but in the end, He will get the greatest glory and you will get the greatest mercy. So now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace for he's already gone before you. You're dismissed.